Sweat Equity Podcast and streaming show, the number one business comedy podcast in the world. A uh, little bit of a different intro. Sorry, we didn't get one last week. I've been uh, messing up our scheduling, uh, but we will make it up to you by always providing value. But we'll make it up uh, looking into some fun stuff in the future. So we'll make this intro very quick. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Zupyak, the first search-optimized AI content writer. I've been using it. I don't like any of the other AI writers. They're not simple enough. It's a little bit too confusing. You, you sign up for the trial, you get boned on the subscription, uh, and you go, I'm going to learn that, I'm going to learn that. Zupyak, very easy. My dad could use it. That's how easy. Uh, Zupyak, it's hooking up SEO. I've been cranking out blog posts for clients with it. And if you go to zupyak.com, Z-U-P-Y-A-K.com, promo code SWEAT, as in key sweat, as in traded defensive end, Montez Sweat. Um, you get the hookup, holler if you hear me. That's uh, Zupyak, Z-U-P-Y-A-K.com, promo code SWEAT. And this podcast, was recording a little bit ago uh, and just couldn't get my shit together to get it up. Um, it was an interesting conversation with my old pal that worked at Turo, uh, Matias. Matias? I should probably look that up. My old pal, Matias Realfleet. It's a tough one. But we talked about uh, scaling up, uh, being married, uh, and not making it work yet, but having someone that believes in you as a partner. Very cool, uh, you know, very interesting dude. So let's get this party started. I can't yell because I'm on the road in a hotel, so I'm gonna go, hotty toddy. Matias, is that how you say it? Uh, Mateus? Mateus. Yes. Okay. Ready? It wouldn't it? be Sweat Equity Podcast if I didn't mess up something I'm supposed to read. Nah, is right. How are you? I'm good. We just we get right into it. Uh, we're doing a little differently because of scheduling snafu on my part. So it's just you and I. Uh, my my partner. Uh, I got to stop saying partner. My business partner, my co-host, uh -huh. who's in the background. You can see uh, him and I usually do it together. Uh, I always like to ask everybody, have you listened to the show before coming on? Honest answer, no. <laughs> no, it's so funny to us that a lot of people, we get your bookers that are booking agents that, hey, this person wants to come on the show. Great. <laughs> no one listens to it. So um, that's uh, fantastic. No, but I think it should, for the, for the records and just so you don't feel bad, I think it, it kind of makes sense in a in a sense that like the audience of people who are listening to the show and, and getting benefit depending on how the show is structured and the the people they are kind of feature. Now it's very different. For example, I love this podcast called Owned that you now is about business owners. So the folks that are in the show definitely. Or maybe never heard about the show, but like you know, it's still it doesn't mean that it's not interesting. It's just that the audience maybe. Hey, we only got like four hundred and thirty episodes. Pretty hard to find. Uh, it's 
<laughs> you, I know that was a really good PR spin. I like that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, we only ask because people that come on, they don't know what they're getting into a lot of the time. And we're not like, uh, we're not hardcore asking questions, but we do make it awkward very, very often like this. Um, uh, so we like to ask everybody that comes on the, for the first time, this question, uh, which may juxtapose against us being, uh, usually in tank tops and kind of silly, what advice would you ask your 13 year old self? So what advice would, what advice would you give your 13 year old? How self? would you give? Okay. I'm a little punchy today. So. Uh yeah, and always what advice I would give my 13 year old self is to have courage, be not don't be afraid about failure, about doing things, about learning, about looking stupid sometimes. But that's when I was 13, I think was a lot more careful and worried about you know, I play tennis and I'm not sure if I should sign up to for this competition because I may not win. I have this idea, but I'm not sure if it's going to work. Like right now, I think I'm a little more like, yeah, just do it because it may be a terrible idea. It may be a good idea. And that's just one, one way to find out. What? So you were 13 in Brazil? In Brazil. Yes. Playing tennis and unsure. What? Um, it's kind of the, uh, I, I bucket that answer underneath kind of the majority answers are like, get rid of the radio noise and whatever you're into, be into it. Were you kind of in a path that led you down from, you know, I'm not sure what I'm doing to, oh, this is what I excel at? Or was, it, I know that's kind of a leading question, but uh, were you running? No, I think I was in the path. I was in the path. So by the age 13, I had already started my first very small business with a friend selling calendars to the teachers in our school. Really? Um, so I always knew I wanted to be a founder. I would end up starting my own things. So that piece, I think I was pretty much in the right path. Maybe at the time I had some athletic uh, expectation. I mentioned tennis. Like, I wish I could play Wimbledon or be a professional tennis player. Made that that couldn't have gotten me out of my my founder path. But like professionally speaking, it's roughly the same. So yeah, I don't think to me it was a changing path. It's more like a, maybe I, I would have gotten faster in places faster just because I would have take, taking risks faster done more faster well so what kind of calendars are these these sexy like fireman calendars what are we talking about here now we're talking about very boring like christmas or whatever so they started the back back stories like my dad traveled to the u.s i was 10 years old he brought one of those kind of hp desk jet like ink printers which at the time was very rare oh, and yeah. we What's may have year? what year are we talking we're talking there was 1994 okay yeah yeah the home printer is very rare yeah home printer and color so that's the thing so we my my buddy and i were nerds geeking with computer at the time already and we just created this like ways to do calendars happy birthday cards whatever and we started to print that in regular paper and sell in our school to our teachers i don't know if they bought it because they were they were like, you know, feeling sorry about us. They would think they would break our hearts or whatever. But we sold quite a bit of money in that. And we spent our money, like, you know, buying magic cards, buying toys, buying video games or whatever things that 10-year-olds do. 
So you, you feel entrepreneurial pretty much since the jump in a way. Yes. Um, now you, <laughs> yeah. So I'm just imagining you going around, you know, trying to, trying to hawk these calendars to, uh, to teachers and they you think they felt bad for you more than anything. They probably had a calendar of some sort, maybe a planner. Well, they did use the calendars. They did use, like, but so I think there was some customer value on that, but you're right. Like you never know. And then that if it was just out of like, you know, pity of us, or if it was really because they were excited, they were pretty, they were color again in a time where those are not obvious and easy things to find. Um, but, but yeah, never know. You remember what kind of paper we talking nice paper, we talking printer paper. What do we do? Printer paper, like plain oh. vanilla, normal printer paper that you fold in like fours. And then you have like some, like, uh, yeah, it was nothing. Or some glossy paper sometimes we use, but again, nothing, they were not, they probably did not look professional as if you were to print in a print shop. That's for sure. Um, so you're you're uh, talking to me from Vegas right now. Yes. And your plight brought you from. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the the small city you're from, Tabate. Uh, That's right. It's a city. You, let's call it, it like 80 miles outside Sao Paulo. Is that how you say it? Did I butcher it? Well, you butcher a little bit. You would say Tabate. Tabate. Okay. Yes. Look, I can't read English, so you know, <laughs> trying anything Portuguese is going to be tough. Uh, and now you're you're currently living in Vegas, which is um, I'll, I'll want to I want to get your input on how much you love Vegas. Um, I love Vegas, but I would put one caveat: we live in Summerlin, which is really deep in the suburbs. Yep. Um, and it is like what fifteen miles away from the Strip. Yeah. So it is a very different Vegas from what most people experience. <laughs> yeah, it's like being in Henderson, right? Like it is. It's further than Henderson. It oh, is further okay. than this trip than Henderson. So it's like Henderson, but even more suburbia. I would say. What brought you over over there? It seems, uh, you know, if you're usually if you're international coming in you're you're usually staying in vegas vegas what what brought you to uh the outskirts of vegas well because for us like again my the backstory is my my wife is also a founder of a startup also remote so we were both in the bay area paying a lot of money for cost of living very high taxes like all the things they're not so great about california california is, is amazing in many ways and i love the bay area it's chill but it just didn't make sense for the time of our lives as a couple of founders with a daughter. We need more space. We need you know, better housing for cheap or cheaper, right, than the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what brought us to to, to Vegas. And then why, why the suburbs is because, like, yeah, we wanted, like, you know, uh, uh, to the suburb lifestyle, but it just wanted to be in a place with better weather and cheaper cost of living. Yeah, yeah, I I totally I was just in um Lake Tahoe and I I get why a lot of people from the Bay Area have a place in Reno for that reason as well. You know, mm -hmm. you think of Reno as what you were just talking about like the Vegas strip and uh there's a part of Reno that's very fancy on the lake and a lot of people choose to live there for the tax purposes. Look, I'll recruit you to Florida if you want. Florida's got <sighs> 
Tampa's never been hit by a hurricane. We need we need all the good people. We need more. We need better imports into this state over here. Yeah, I love Florida, so I'll be easily convinced. Uh, my wife a little bit harder, but you know, one day, <laughs> never know. Well, um, tell tell me about uh, Tent AI. And tell yeah, me- so we we what? help uh, tech platforms create their embedded protection products. So think about uh, when you go to Airbnb. Even if you don't think about it as a user, you're purchasing insurance. So if you stay in a place and the place burns, you you're covered. So many companies right now, so Airbnb, Uber, uh, Apple, Tesla, they're starting to offer insurance products to their users because it's a much better experience for the the consumers, and they can you know have a better business, make more money, and we power it all. So we help those companies structure and offer their on kind of protection or insurance products. And we provide all the technology, all the services, and all the kind of capital required. So we're really an end-to-end solution for those brands that are looking you're, to offer insurance. You're feeling a necessary need in this kind of new, um, call it uninsured peer-to-peer kind of uh, transactions. Is that fair to say? Yes, this is one of our use cases, but it gets really everywhere. So if you think about, we work with a company called UShip. When you can ship stuff from anywhere in the US to anything from anywhere in the US, um, and you can ship your car from Tampa to San Francisco, and we work with them to provide shipping protection. So if your car gets damaged on in transit, this insurance or this protection product will pay. So we're seeing shipping. There is a crypto. So like it's really. What we're seeing is there's this wave called embedded insurance that you will really, uh, if you think about it in 10 years, customers should buy most of their insurance product, if not all, from the brands they love, the products they love, not from insurance companies directly. I think that's really what's what's going on here. I didn't know that's I didn't know that was the the status quo. I didn't know that was well, tell me the last time you bought insurance and then tell me how much you like your your insurer of your car, for example. Well, I was um, I was on a mom son lunch date earlier today, not bragging, but uh, I was uh, she was like, who do you have on the show? And I was giving her kind of, uh, you know, the info I've got on you. And I go, oof, insurance, this is going to be a tough one because insurance. Look, I hear a couple of words that I just kind of I try not to zone out. I try to really focus more. But, you know, that's the point. You're not alone. Everybody like so there's no point of insurance companies trying to get you to love their brands because frankly, you don't care and you shouldn't care. But if things goes wrong, you must be protected because if you're not, you may be like in financials jeopardy and like, you know, all your kind of earn, earnings and savings may be completely wiped out. So that's why insurance is so important and capitalism doesn't work without it. But to your point, from a customer perspective, as much as it can disappear from your face and still give you the protection, that's what we were powering. And that's the transformation that is happening uh, in the industry. What made you get into this? I mean, it, it is, you just found, you found a need and kind of hit it. Um, maybe it's not your passion, but maybe maybe making this need, ne- this necessary need kind of fruitful for the end user maybe is what, what's your why? I guess I should ask. My why is like, you know, if you work with it, again, it's very important, as I mentioned, like, you know, people can, have their financial lives completely ruined if something happened and they don't have protection. But now how how I got into this is like, I um, 
was one of the early employees of Turo, the PHP car sharing company. So let's you rent other people's cars. So as you can imagine, insurance is a big, uh, it's a big, it's, it's a top of mind. If you're renting out your Porsche to a stranger, you want to make sure that that's very well covered. And the person driving the Porsche needs to make sure that he or she is covered as well, because if they get into an accident, they are off you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of damage or if the car gets stolen or whatever. So that's what was uh, my background before uh, Taint. And that was when we kind of really stumbled upon the problem. I never thought about this problem in my life before until I joined this company and spent 80% of my time doing it. And surprisingly enough, like I found it very fun. And my co-founder and I, because insurance, as boring as it is, and like behind the scenes, there's a lot of like, it's a data problem. And it's, uh, right. it's very, like you're trying to predict the future. You're trying to figure out how much people are going to get in access in the future. So you price how much they should pay today. It can get very intellectually uh, like stimulating, I would say. And again, as I mentioned, ultimately, it's a good product, uh, product for consumers that if we can make them purchase it without having to think as much, make it easier for them, we're making their lives better. And I think that gets me super excited as a founder. Yeah, it, it, look, there, there's... There's uh, a lot of entities, a lot of startups, or you might be a disruptor in this kind of game um, that it might not be sexy on the output, but that's where a lot of the opportunity lies when it's the unsexy things like this. Yeah. And I would argue is the same for pretty much every business. Like, do you think that Uber, if arguably went to the taxi business, like that's not a sexy business, like Flexport doing shipping of containers around the world, not very sexy either. And they are, to your point, they are creating the industries or recreating in a way that becomes sexy and exciting, but they always started with a very kind of big, non-sexy industry. Well, I was early money on Turo <laughs> as a traveling comic. Cause um, I, it, again, I think Uber was kind of sexy in the sense that I think the ones that really reach a lot of people are like, uh, on a personal level is like, why does this have to be this way? Like rental cars mm -hmm. still is a really terrible kind of industry. It's like, mm -hmm. why is there a line every time I go to get a rental car still? Like you, you should know exactly what's there. And then every time you go get a rental car, it's like, oh, we overbooked it. And it's like, you haven't figured this thing out yet. Yeah. Yeah. You really haven't figured this out in what, 50 years of renting cars. Like they haven't caught up to everything, which is insane. Turo has its own, you know, sometimes issues. I, I suppose I've heard horror stories, but I'd still rather go with that. Uh, same with Uber. I was fine with Uber uh, when cities were trying to close it down across the country when they first really mm -hmm. expanded. It's like, well, do you want to go in an unsafe car? Oh, you mean, do I want to go in the taxi with knife cuts in the plexiglass uh, <laughs> as, a as a barrier between me and the driver and no seatbelts? Yeah. yeah, I think I'll take my ride with the person that has the incentive to drive safely, right? Yeah. And knows where they're going. Now, now it's swung a little bit to the other way where I I don't know the last time I've been in uh, an Uber where they follow the, the GPS as they're supposed to do it. Like they always mess it up. I'm like, how do you mess this up? How are you distracted? This is your only job. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, what, uh, so coming to America, you didn't have a lot of connections to get things going. Tell tell me about that plate. 
Yeah, I definitely didn't. I came here. I didn't know. I mean, honestly, I didn't know many people, uh, but I went to business school. So that was almost like that was one of the reasons why I went to business school. It was a small business school, I believe. It was not really heard of. Which one? Yeah, it's a small one, uh, but Harvard Business School. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, then I jokes apart, like it's definitely like I, I kind of met a lot of people there. And then that was kind of how I, I created my early connections. But even that wasn't enough. So I then joined Turo right after business school and spent four years at Turo. That's where I think I met a lot of my, my more like professional tech-based network. So for example, Turo CEO, who was my former boss, Andre Haddad, he was our first check at Tint. So he tried to, you know, retain me, make sure I didn't leave for like 15 minutes or so. But then he's like, no, I know you. I know you should go. And by the way, he helped being the first check. So by the time I, I launched Tint four years after joining Turo, I had a lot of connections in the Valley. I knew folks that we could sell to, that I could recruit. And that made all the difference. I always tell founders that, especially in the B2B world where you are selling to companies, you probably need some connections. And if you don't have work for someone, work from some company to build them, because it's very hard to be successful without that. Well, um, I mean, that that sounds like the American story that we like, we should, we should push out to everybody in other countries. Um, hey, don't worry. You work hard. You do what you're supposed to do. Things will prosper. But that's not met without kind of um, uh, any any strife. Can you tell me about when you're trying to get this going, you know, it seems like there, what were the problems you initially hit with, with this? Because while it might be a great idea and you might have some connections, you don't have all the big time connections, right? So it's like, how do you, I, I feel like I empathize with a lot of people out there. There's a lot of great ideas most lack ex execution. It seems like you had execution, but how do you get to the right players you need to? How did that how did that kind of all align? Well, I think there's probably many, many, like it's a very complex answer, I would say, but I try to think about maybe simplify a bit. I think the reality is that like as any startup, like there's a very high rate of failure and I mean, the odds are against you as a founder. The same way there is, you are against us as a, a a bit larger company now. But like, it's is the same. I think that like, as founders, the way I see it is like, you should try to incre increase your profitability, uh, so profitability, your probability of success with as many things as you can. And then if you means like, no, having other people who know and trust you, it's a first step that lets you get in the path where you could succeed. Does not mean you're gonna succeed. Most people have people they know, they try and it's not, it's not gonna work out. But if they don't have that, then it's even harder, right? So that's what I'm trying to say. So, and I think again, in our case, our story is far from linear. There's a lot of ups and downs at any startup. We're far from being successful. Uh, so the jury is absolutely still out, but you're right to like, at least the beginnings of the journey were a bit easier because we kind of put the right elements um, in place. Yeah, was there, um, and we'll, we're keeping this short because uh, 
I have to run to go do our next podcast episode. So we're, we'll we'll wrap this up in a second. But I'm always curious about the the fetal position move where you're you're in that mode where you're like, am I doing this right? What I, I call the fetal position. You get in the fetal position move where you're you're almost catatonic. You're like, did I do? Am I really fucking up my new family that I have? I know your daughter's only three, so this may happen way before. Um, but was was there a fetal position, scared, fearful moment you had with all of this, and how'd you get out of it? I think you're always scared. Like taking the leap is incredibly hard, and especially if you have a high opportunity cost, right? So if you're in in a job, if you have access to jobs that are very well paying. It's very hard to convince yourself that jumping to this no salary for unlimited time that it has a high probability of failing makes any sense. I think for me, like, again, it was I put myself in a position after and I'm after learned getting burned before in my career. Uh, I put myself in the right place after Turo where I was like financially stable. So I knew my family wouldn't be in jeopardy, even if I you know the things didn't work out. So I try to de-risk as much as possible. And at the end of the day, it's like just taking the leap. Right? Going back to your early question, what I would tell my 13 years old, it's exactly what I did. It's like, just do it. Yeah. There's no right time. There's no right way. It's very hard. Odds are against you. But you know what? Worst case scenario, it's not going to work out. You go find a job. Probably you get a better job than you would otherwise because you learn a lot in the process. So that's how I rationalize uh, this decision. But yeah, I don't know if it's that, that thinking works for everyone. It sounds like you took a very pragmatic, not very pragmatic. Yeah. And, very pragmatic. and you got a ride or die chick as your wife, it sounds like. So that's good. As, as we say in the rap game, because I'm a huge rapper. I'm not. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, we, we want to watch this story progress and so we'll have to get you back on later down the line. Cause, um, especially with my co-hosts here, uh, to ping and pong off of you. Appreciate you coming on partner. Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. Get back to work. My Cheers. Friend. See ya.